Okay. Well, last week I had misspelled a few things on my slides, and only a couple people said something. You know, it's like having a big chunk of lettuce in your teeth, and those people that call that, that identify themselves as your friends, they don't say anything. So I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I don't give much attention to my slides. I'm more concerned about the content of my information. So I was trying to pay attention, and the uh, the backdrop doesn't, uh, the red doesn't show up, you know, and it tells me that I've screwed up. And uh, so that's at least my excuse. But all the homeschool kids are like, you just can't spell. <laughs> I get that. So. Yeah, well, why don't we, why don't we stand up and, and we'll pray, then we'll uh, get into this. Father, we love you and we're grateful for your word. Thankful, Lord, that it doesn't just tell us of the things that you've done in the past. Uh, Lord, and we're witnesses of the things that you're doing in the present, but there's so much that we get to look forward to that you have revealed uh, about the end. And uh, so I pray that you would use this information not just to inform us, but to encourage us and uh, to help us to walk more closely with you. Because these things are going to happen, and nothing can stop it. And we want to be ready. And uh, So Lord, do in our hearts what is necessary to prepare us. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Okay. Uh, I don't have a text to give you just at this moment. I'll have most of the things on the screen, but uh, they, uh, the upgrade made it so that I can't copy and paste from my Bible onto the slide without it being a microtext, and then I can't enlarge it big enough for you to see it. So thank you to those at Apple uh, who potentially don't use their own material. Uh, so I have to type it out, and some of the texts are too big to type out, especially when you type like I do like a chicken, you search and peck. And uh, so anyway, I'll have as much up there as I can for you. I prefer to have it up there uh, because as I'm moving, you may not have time to open your Bibles to the text. Uh, everything you'll see on the screen, everything I read will be uh, from the New King James Version. And uh, so yeah. So uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at things pertaining to the future. And if you've been on YouTube of late, there's all kinds of views about the future. Uh, but too often, I believe that uh, there's too much current events interpreting the scriptures, rather than the scriptures being the authority that interprets current events. So I'm going to be uh, giving my attention, as always, to the exposition of the text. Uh, I, I'm not interested too much in current events. Uh, I pay attention to them. But if I don't see something that is um, directly related to the scriptures, uh, easily identifiable, I don't give it uh, a whole lot of credence. Uh, the attention that is given to current events leads, I think, to more lunacy uh, than it leads to Christian edification. Okay, So, um, yeah, I'm not the person to sound the alarm uh, and get people all worked up about the rapture, uh, the tribulation, the mark of the beast, and uh, the second coming. I assure you that the barcode we give your kids for checking in, it's not the mark of the beast. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's probably on Facebook someplace that Calvary Chapel is distributing the mark of the beast. Um, I don't really care. So, um, yeah, we don't want any frenzy going on here. Um, so, 
Let's review so that we're all on the same page, and then we'll get into the meat of our study. In the last couple weeks, uh, we've explored a number of the covenants of the Bible, but we've given special attention really to two of them, uh, which is the land promise and the throne promise. But we've also noticed that there's another promise that kind of keeps coming back through them, and, uh, and that's uh, the redemption promise concerning Israel. Here they are. We have the land promise, the throne promise, and then the redemption promise, referring to the future redemption of ethnic Israel when they repent, uh, and they have not yet, obviously, as a nation, and um, they come to faith in Christ. That promise is embedded in all of the uh, covenants uh, that we've looked at, um, at least the land promise and the throne promise. And then also, as we've looked at them, you've noticed that the land promise is tied into the throne promise, and then mingled in that is this issue of Israel, the redemption in the land, and so forth. And uh, so what we find as we look at these is that these three promises will be fulfilled uh, about the same time in history. Okay? They're talked about together. They will be fulfilled together. And so let's review the land promise real quick. We observe that the land promise, which God uh, promised to Abram and his physical descendants, has never been inherited by them. Under David, uh, they secured most of the land, but not all of it, and it was only for a time, just for a brief time in history. And even if they had secured all of the land during David's reign, it would not have fulfilled God's promise that they would inherit the land forever. And we, we, we syllabified that very well last week, remember? We said forever. And what does it mean? It means forever, okay? Now, some Bible students dismiss the land promise by saying that it was a conditional promise. Therefore, inheriting the land was conditioned on Israel's obedience to God and their faithfulness to the covenant. And we all know that they failed at both, okay? But we demonstrated that there are no conditions stated anywhere in the Bible, uh, in the context of this promise, and the promise was repeated to Israel uh, even after they were punished in the, during the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel brings the promise up again. So they could not have forfeited the covenant because the covenant was unilateral, it was unconditional, and it's irrevocable. And we compared that to the Noahic covenant uh, because we know that God will never destroy the earth again. Uh, with water, no matter how wicked humanity gets, because that promise to Noah was unilateral, unconditional, and irrevocable. He will not flood the earth again. So too with his promise to Abraham and to his physical descendants, he promised that he would, they would inherit the land forever unconditionally. If God does not give Israel the promised land, we cannot be sure uh, that he will not flood the earth again. But as we looked at from the book of Titus, from the book of Hebrews, God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. And also nothing can thwart his purposes. So the earth will never flood again. And Israel will inherit the land. Okay. This promise is yet to be fulfilled. Also the throne promise. The promise to King David. All right. We observe that God's promise to establish the Davidic throne will be forever in the land of Israel. And this has never been fulfilled at any time in history. But some say that this is currently being fulfilled, 
But how do they say that? They say that instead of Jesus sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, and ruling over the whole earth, they believe he is seated on his Father's throne in heaven, ruling over the saints who have died and now reside there with Christ until he returns. Now, I have to say that I'm actually willing uh, to believe anything that the Bible says, but no place in Scripture says that. Not a single text in all of the Bible. Okay, no place in Scripture figuratively identifies David's throne with God the Father's throne. No passage of Scripture indicates that the Father's throne in heaven fulfills the Davidic throne here on earth. And Scripture never says that Jesus is ruling over the people of God in heaven okay, as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The Scriptures are completely silent on that particular position. What happens, or what is done rather, is it requires a strenuous allegorizing of the text of Scripture okay, in order to arrive there. And so what the, the Scriptures state plainly, they have to deal with it figuratively, uh, non-literally. But the thing is, in every passage of Scripture, David's throne is just David's throne. Just David's throne. And nearly every throne promise is associated with planet Earth. Never once is it associated with heaven. And every time the land promise is mentioned, it's always a clear reference to that piece of dirt that God gave Abraham and his physical descendants. So something that I, I ask people is this. If God meant something other than what he plainly stated in those passages, without any indication anywhere in Scripture that he meant something different, how could we ever know anything in Scripture with any confidence? If he never says what he means... If it's never clear, how can I really ever know? But if it's stated plainly as it is over and over and over again, I think the best rule is to just take it at face value. Okay. Take the scriptures as they come to us. The plain reading of the text of all those passages yields a future fulfillment of an earthly kingdom with Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem from which he will rule over the earth, and nothing excites me more than that. Okay, nothing. For him to come and imagine to fix the abortion problem, to fix human trafficking, to fix, to fix, to fix. 50, what it was, what did I read the other day? Uh, human trafficking generates, it's a, it's a $50 billion uh, industry in the world, and America is the greatest contributor to it. We need some fixing around here. It, planet Earth is a mess. Some people believe that Jesus is ruling over earth from heaven currently, uh, I don't think that you could insult him more. If what we're seeing right now is characteristic of his dominion, that's insulting. Okay, that's insulting. And it doesn't describe what we see anywhere in the scriptures. This promise about the throne is yet to be fulfilled. And then this redemption promise, uh, which, uh, as we've said, it's embedded in there. Uh, this is, it's not just predicted in the Old Testament. One uh, very famous theologian said that if, if you're going to affirm these promises, you have to go to the Old Testament. So, it, it's all the Word of God, isn't it? Uh, what difference does it make where it's stated? Uh, I don't know what kind of an argument that is, uh, unless he's arguing for my position. You understand? Uh, because we say the Bible says. Amen? The Word of God says. Yeah. But it's also discussed by Paul in Romans 11, where believers among the Gentiles and believers among ethnic Israel, they're distinguished from one another. This is what Paul says to the Gentile believers. Please listen carefully to the language. 
He's speaking to Gentiles. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And Gentiles have a habit of doing that. He says, Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, quoting the Old Testament. Even Paul went to the Old Testament. Strange habit. He says, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they, that's unbelieving ethnic Israel, are enemies for your sake, that's the believing Gentiles, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers to whom the promises were made. He says, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty five through 29. So by way of divine judgment, God has struck ethnic Israel with partial spiritual blindness. They will remain that way, as Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, at which time their blindness will be removed and they will be saved. So what does all that mean? Well, Israel is a nation we know rejected the gospel of Christ. So God subjected them. He's judging them with partial blindness as the gospel is being taken to the Gentile world where there's this harvest that's going on. And as soon as God has saved the elect among the Gentiles, he will lift Israel's blindness at which time they will return to Christ. Now this does not mean that every individual Jew Israeli will be saved. He's talking about the majority. Okay? And then Paul concludes regarding ethnic Israel. And the reason he says this is because of the promises made in the Old Testament. Regarding them, he says, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And therefore, this promise, the redemption promise, is yet to be fulfilled. So these are all unfulfilled promises. The land, the throne, and redemption. We have no historical fulfillment. Okay? Now understand that when God makes a promise and it's unfulfilled and it's sustained for a time, he is placing his integrity on the line. But it's no big deal to him. Okay? But what it causes people to do is it causes them to waver in their position on the scriptures. People use current events to adjust their view of, of the scriptures. People use this uh, we, it's like our children with their impatience. Uh, all the world's coming to an end because they don't get what they want right away. Uh, so what we do is we change our position so that we don't have to feel that tension. But when you come back to the scriptures and let them speak clearly for themselves, you go, hey, the Lord is sovereign. He's, he has his own clock. As, as Acts chapter 1 says, he's set the clock. He's set the timer. It's going to go off exactly when he wants it to. And then things will unravel uh, as Paul and Peter say, at a rapid pace. Rapid. Yep. These things are future. So at what point in human history will these promises be realized? Now, by the way, in asking this question and the way we're going to answer it this morning, I'm not going to give you a date. <laughs> We've said this before. Date setters all have one thing in common. They're all wrong. Okay? I don't like to be wrong, so I set no dates. All right? But I believe that the scriptures are right. And uh, they will prove themselves as just that. So, when? These are the four things that we're going to talk about 
These things will unravel, they will occur after the last man-made kingdom falls. Not just falls, when they're conquered. Because we're not going to end this all without a battle, right? And uh, we all love a good fight, especially when the good guy wins. He doesn't just win, he decimates, okay? We'll look at Daniel 2. It'll be following or after the Great Tribulation. Those texts are there for you. Uh, It'll be after Christ's return. And then when the world is still morally broken. When the world is still morally broken. So we'll look at that as well. Okay, man's last kingdom. Daniel chapter 2. Now, from Sunday school, you're probably familiar with Daniel chapter 2. I hope you are. In Daniel chapter 2, it's during Israel's captivity in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream that was given to him by God concerning the future. As Daniel says in Daniel 2.28, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel 2.28. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's about the future. That's what Daniel tells him. Okay, has everything to do with the kingdoms of men and the future kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a big deal in the book of Daniel. Okay, and actually Daniel chapter 2 is what we call the hermeneutic for the rest of the book. It's the key. It's how you interpret all of the other visions of Daniel because they look back to Daniel chapter 2. If you lose sight of that, you'll screw up the rest of the prophecies and then you'll want to pull your hair out. But if you use Daniel chapter 2, the vision there as the key, it all comes together very nicely. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God shows him this multi-metallic statue. And, it, and, and Daniel says it was awesome in appearance. It's a head of fine gold, verse 32, chest and arms of silver, verse 32, a belly and thighs of bronze, verse 32, legs of iron, Verse 33, and the feet were mingled with iron and with clay. Verse 33. Now, each of these metals with the clay and the feet represents an earthly man-made kingdom or empire in their historical sequence, literally in history, and it happened exactly as as Daniel interprets it. The head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom. Uh, His kingdom, of course, is where the sequence begins. The chest and arms of silver represent the Medo Persian Empire. The belly and thighs of bronze represent the Grecian Empire with Alexander the Great, which was then left over to his four generals. The legs of iron represent the Roman Empire under Caesar Augustus and those who succeeded him. And then we come to the feet, it's mingled with iron and clay. These, as the interpretation of the prophecy is given, they represent the last kingdom of man that will be upon planet earth. Now because it has iron in it, if we're going to be consistent with the passage, we have to say that it has something to do with the Roman Empire because the legs of iron were the Roman Empire. Okay? In verse 43, the clay, which is then mingled with the iron, uh, Daniel interprets that for us. He says it's the seed of men. That needs some interpreting as well. What then is the seed of men? Now there are some very wild interpretations about what the iron is as being mingled with um, the clay. I think they're more strange and confusing than helpful. Okay. So let me give you an interpretation that is actually from the historical context of it itself from the Roman Empire. The Roman emperors believed themselves to be gods, not arrogant at all. Okay. Caesar 
was called Lord God. Lord God. And we find Paul, especially in his epistles, always referring to Jesus that way. And it's a jab at Caesar. It really is. Okay, but it's identifying that the Lord of the church, the Lord of creation, Lord of heaven and earth, is Christ the Lord. It's not Caesar is Lord. And as, as church history rolled on, uh, what, what had happened was the, the, the Christians were kind of flying under the radar of the Jews uh, for a large part of the first century. And the Jews had an exemption. They didn't have to you know, go to the incense altar and, and pull out a handful of incense and then cast it into the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. But what happened is the Romans started to catch on. And they realized that the Christians were a separate religious group from the Jews. And they said, you do not have such an exemption. You will pinch to Caesar. Pinch incense, cast it in the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians said, you can jump off a bridge. And then Caesar said, Christians to the lions. And that's when the great persecution really, really began. Okay? They would not identify Caesar as God. Okay. So with the, the emperors believing themselves to be God, naturally produced kind of two ideas of classes within Roman society. You had divine and you had human. The iron then would represent the divine class. Gods with little g's. The seed of men would represent the common people. Okay. And together, so-called gods and the common man will form this future government, which will weaken the, being, having the seed of men be a part of it will weaken the government, weaken the power of that empire. Why would that be? Well, because tyrants cannot be so tyrannical when their power is being controlled by the average person. You bring those governments together and uh, it weakens it. It's not as stable. Now, some people think that interpretation is too simplistic of an interpretation. But we have to understand historical context always rules what is wacky. Okay? Uh, that's actually the, the, the most common rule clung to when it comes to interpreting the scriptures, the literal, historical, and grammatical interpretation. Okay, we want the plain reading of the text. We want what the text was meaning to the people in its historical context. Okay? And we want, of course, use the grammar because we believe all of that is inspired. Amen? We want it to rule our interpretation. That way we become subject to the scriptures rather than the scriptures becoming subject to us and our fancies. Okay. So this kingdom, it's the final kingdom of men because it is brought to an end and no other kingdom will come after that except for the one that follows in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It reveals that kingdom. It says, He watched as a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Toes were flying everywhere. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver... And the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. Praise God. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 35. What is that all about? Daniel interprets for us, saying, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. 
The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Wow, it's good stuff. Now, there's a number of significant things that have to be identified about this kingdom, okay? It's cut without hands. It's cut without hands. It's, it's, it's communicating this is not a man-made kingdom. It's not the hands of man doing this. It's something else. It destroys all the kingdoms of men, verse 35, and it becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. It's set up by the God of heaven. This is no man-made kingdom. It shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. So it's God-made. It brings an end to all the other empires. Okay? Now, but like the other man-made empires, this kingdom will be earthly. It will be on earth. It says it fills the earth. Verse 35. And unlike the man-made kingdoms, which lasted for a time, this God-made kingdom will endure forever. I think I know what you're thinking. This sure sounds a lot like the throne promise. It is. It is, obviously. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd have two parallel kingdoms that rule forever. I don't think that we have that. Okay? We have two earthly, eternally enduring kingdoms. This is the messianic kingdom. Okay? And like all the man-made kingdoms, this one will be earthly. But unlike them, it will be forever. forever. It'll destroy them, human government, replace it with divine government. This will be a perfect theocracy on planet Earth. Okay, perfect theocracy. Throne promise will be fulfilled when this God-made kingdom destroys the last human government. Do we currently have human government? And it's impressive, huh? <laughs> well, if we currently have human government on Earth, this government is yet future. It has not been fulfilled. We're waiting for the throne promise. What about the Great Tribulation? This must pass first before these promises begin to un unravel. In Matthew 24, I love Matthew 24, the disciples come to Jesus. So what's happening is they're walking outside the temple and the disciples notice these massive stones. And you can go see them today. We have, there's no heavy equipment today that can lift them. It's, it's a mystery why they got there. And they say, Jesus, isn't this impressive? And he says, ah, it's all going to be torn down. There won't be one stone left upon another. And then he walks away. And the boys are thinking, what in the world? And Jesus goes up onto the, the Mount of Olives, and that's why they call this the Olivet Discourse. And they come to him, and they have these questions, as we would, because nothing is more important to the Jew than that temple. And if that temple is going to crumble to the ground, what does that mean? It means war. It means war. They said, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They said before that, when will these things happen? You know, this destruction of the temple. But they say, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. So Jesus tells them. He begins by telling them about what he calls the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows, he says, will come first. Matthew 24, verse 8, which is then that time is concluded by something that's most significant. It's called the abomination of desolation. This is what he says. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. It was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, so we should probably consult Daniel. Amen? But Jesus says first, he says that the abomination of desolation will be seen standing in the holy place. So first, what is abominable means detestable. Detestable. An abominable thing. Not to be confused with a snowman. And it's not what we would think is detestable, okay? Not what we think, but it's what Daniel the prophet says would be detestable. In Daniel, the abominable thing is a person. 
It's not just simply a thing. And they, they do something that desecrates the temple of God. He's mentioned in Daniel 9.27 and Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Historically, there was a soft fulfillment of what, we, what is called the abomination of desolation. When Antiochus Epiphany, a Greek, stood in the temple of God in Jerusalem, he declared himself to be God, and then he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the holy place. Not, not in the holy of holies, but out in the first part of the temple, which is called the holy place. And that desecrated it. Now, after that event, after years, the Jews finally defeated the armies of Antiochus, and they rededicated the temple. And the Jews commemorate that with Hanukkah, okay? a real historical event, Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. Now, this all happened in the temple to give us an idea of what things would look like in the future. That's why Jesus said, when you see what Daniel was talking about, all right? Now, there are some people who think that this was fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus the Roman conquered Jerusalem and murdered countless Jews. They say that the abomination that made the temple desolate occurred when the Romans displayed their ensigns in the temple, the temple compound. Uh, the ensign is the Roman flag with the eagle on it. Uh, that, that idea deserves a response. First, the only eyewitness account that we have of this event is Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian who was captured by Titus the Roman, forced to um, uh, interpret and translate for him and, and also to document the offense, uh, the events. Well, Josephus tells us that the Roman ensigns never entered the holy place, but remained outside the temple wall itself. Some scholars say, well, that's close enough. And I say, this is not horseshoes. If Jesus says it'll stand in the holy place, guess where it'll be? It won't be outside. It will be right where Jesus says. Otherwise, as I've said before, his prophecies, Jesus' prophecies are as good as Notre Dame's. His are precise. He could have said the temple. He didn't. He said the holy place. The preposition is very clear. And he says also that it would be like what was spoken by Daniel the prophet. Well, according to our eyewitness, Josephus, nothing that was described by Daniel occurred in the temple in 70 AD. The temple was destroyed and it was made desolate, but no abominable thing was seen standing in the holy place that caused desolation, just as Jesus said that it would. Now, Paul actually sheds a ton of light on this whole thing, which matches precisely with what Daniel says. Paul says that the man of sin who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Does that sound a little more accurate? <laughs> Daniel mentions this person in Daniel 7, verse 8 and 25. Again in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. And Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. This is not historical events interpreting the scriptures. This is scripture interpreting scripture. And then, of course, the Apostle John mentions this same person in Revelation 13, verse 6. And as we read the rest of Daniel and we look at Revelation, we find that this same man is the one that rules over the last man-made kingdom spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and he is the one that commits the abomination of desolation. So be that as it may, Jesus could not have been referring to 70 AD. There is just no way from the historical data that Matthew 24, 15 was fulfilled at that time. There's just no way. Besides, 
The Apostle John, he wrote the book of Revelation in 90 AD, 20 years after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and he was not recording hindsight for us, he was recording foresight. Okay, that's huge. Now, there's another big reason that 78 does not qualify as the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. In Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus says that, that the abomination of desolation will lead into what he calls the great tribulation. Look at how he defines this. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Okay, so Jesus says that what will follow the abomination of desolation will be the, the worst tribulation the world has ever seen. Now, according to the context, the Jews will get the brunt end of this tribulation. But I can assure you that what happened in 70 AD to the Jews was not the worst thing they've ever endured. The Holocaust claimed many more lives than what happened at 70 AD. They, they believe there's approximately 6 million Jews. So the Holocaust itself disqualifies 70 AD as the fulfillment of Jesus's words. Okay? The abomination of desolation kicks off the great tribulation, and therefore these promises, they're yet to come. But also something follows on the heels of the great tribulation. Jesus goes on and tells us, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. When will that occur? He says, immediately after the tribulation, the great tribulation. And then, the sign of the Son of Man. What did the apostles ask? What will be the sign of your coming? The sun will be darkened. The stars will fall. Okay. He says, the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Yeah, it's the second coming. So the return of Christ. Okay. What does Jesus do when he returns? He doesn't say, hi, I'm back. Okay. He does exactly what Daniel says he would do. He conquers. He conquers. Revelation 19.11 says, Now I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who does he make war with? The last human empire. The empire okay, of the man of sin who sat in the temple declared himself to be God. What does Jesus do with him in his kingdom? Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What a terrifying image that is. Now quickly, some people say that the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth represents the word of God. Uh, they say the sword of the Spirit. It's not likely. This is not the same sword. The sword of the Spirit is the Roman Machaira. Okay? It's a short sword. It's more of a knife. It's a dagger, okay? a self-defense sort of weapon. That's the sword of the Spirit. The same sword is mentioned in Hebrews 4, 12. But the sword in Revelation 19, 15 is the Thracian Ramphaya. It's just a little bit different than the Machaira. Okay? This sword is a long, broad, combat sword for crushing armor. The sword was very long. Okay? They were no joke. They were so long that they carried him over their shoulders so that they would not be dragged on the ground if you strapped it to your hip. They were upwards of six feet long, and they were made to crush battle armor. 
It's so very different than uh, when you have this sword in the image rather than the sword of the Spirit, okay? This is the sword of God's wrath. It's his vengeance. Jesus doesn't come with a knife to strike the nations. He comes with what was the most powerful sword of its time, okay? And in spite of all this, the rulers of the world and their armies, they, they come against Christ, verse 19, but to no avail. It says, then the beast is captured and with him the false prophet. These two were cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, okay? The beast is the man of sin. It's made clear in the text who declares himself to be God. He seats himself in the temple. He and his PR guy, the false prophet, uh, they're cast into the lake of fire alive. Jesus crushes the man-made kingdom and its king. Now, real quick, I think it's necessary because this is uh, confirmed in many other places in Scripture, 2 Thessalonians 1. But I think the most important one is from Isaiah 63. It's a very interesting image. In the vision, Isaiah is looking south from Jerusalem, as, as most prophets looked from in their, their visions. He's seeing someone walk toward him from the south, from Edom. And he's, he wonders to himself about their identity. And then the person actually responds to Isaiah, what appears to be his thoughts. Here's the text, Isaiah speaking first. He says, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And they respond to Isaiah, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. But why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Because I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. God's vengeance is in my heart. And I'm doing this for the sake of my redeemed. Who do you think he's talking about there? Israel. He's on his way back to Jerusalem after the final battle. You know what I think he's heading back to Jerusalem for? It's called a coronation. And then his reign will begin. So after he returns and conquers, verse 15 in Revelation 19 says that he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Does that feel like, uh, seem like the, the fulfillment of something? That's right. The throne promise. In Revelation 20 verse 2, it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years, and the people of Christ reign with him on the earth for a thousand years, according to verse 2 and verse 6. Now, we don't have to inquire about the location of where he reigns from, because we've already answered that from the Old Testament prophets, as well as from Gabriel the angel in Luke 1, 31 through 33. He'll reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem over all the earth. Now, real quick, i got to hurry here because I'm running out of time. There are those who insist that the number 1,000 in the book of Revelation should be taken symbolically. Uh, in fact, I recently listened to a prominent evangelical pastor. He's criticizing those who take the number literally, saying that every single number in the book of Revelation is symbolic. Really? What about these numbers? In Revelation 1.12, John says, 
John saw rather, seven golden lampstands. And in verse 16, he saw seven stars in Jesus' right hand. Are these numbers symbolic? I hope not, because Jesus interprets the vision for John, saying this, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Are the numbers symbolic? No, they're not. Only the stars and the lampstands are symbolic. Okay, the number seven is literal. It's the actual number of angels and churches. How about this number from Revelation 17:7, where the angel tells John that the woman rides on a beast which has seven heads and ten horns. In verse 9, the angel says to John, here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Is the number seven symbolic? No. The heads are symbolic. Seven is literal. The angel also comments on the ten horns. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Is the number 10 symbolic? No. Nope. Just the horns are symbolic. The number 10 is literal. So are all the numbers in Revelation symbolic? I would recant that statement. Otherwise, Jesus and the angel are wrong. I'm not willing to go there. Okay. These things are yet future. And I would be very careful saying that the numbers are symbolic. Be careful. One more thing regarding the, the end times. When, this will all happen when the world is still morally broken. Okay. Now, this, these promises, they're going to be filled at a time before the eternal state, when there is no sin, and after Christ returns. They cannot be fulfilled in heaven because of the way the prophets describe the state of things when Christ returns. Isaiah 11 describes the world that Christ rules, rules over as a time when the poor need justice. Verse 4. If the poor need justice in heaven, it's not heaven. The afflicted need an advocate. Verse 4. The nations will have conflict with Christ. Rule, uh, verse 4. The wicked will be on the earth, verse 4. Israel will be returning to the land, verse 11 through 12. Wicked people will be defeated, verse 14. Wicked nations will be destroyed, verse 15. Isaiah 65, 20 talks about death still occurring at the time of the Messiah's kingdom with the presence of sinners. According to Jeremiah, Christ will at that time need to administer justice and righteousness in the earth and in the land. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, and Jeremiah 33, 15. This cannot be talking about a current kingdom in heaven because there are no poor to be afflicted there. There is no injustice. There is no wicked people there or nations. There is no death in heaven. And it can't be talking about the eternal state because in the eternal state, there is zero sin. There is no death. That's Revelation 21 and 22. So Christ is not currently doing this on earth. He can't be doing it in heaven. So this promise, these promises rather, are yet to be fulfilled. So when? It's going to be after the final kingdom of man falls, after the great tribulation, after Christ returns at a time when the world is still morally broken. Now, I know what a number of you are thinking at this point. You're wondering about my position regarding the rapture. <laughs> Don't get ahead of me. We'll get to that next week. Something that concerns me far more than the rapture itself. It's this. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. He is coming, okay? Nothing can delay him. Nothing can stop him. His father has appointed the day of his appearing, okay? He can, he will, he will come at any moment. 
And so the real concern is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? What you are doing at the moment he returns will be what it is. Nothing can change it. Okay? Whatever you are doing, you'll be caught doing, whether good or bad. But John would counsel us to abide in him at all times, to walk in the light as he is in the light, so that when he appears, it is for us a joyous and festive time, rather than one filled with regret and shame. Now, your understanding of end times events, whether you're right or wrong about it, guess what? It'll make no difference when he comes. No difference at all. The only thing that will matter is where you stand with him and what you're doing. You guys, it's time to abide and be ready. Okay, let's stand up and pray. And yes, I'll give you my rapture position next week. (laughs) Well, Father, I, I believe that because of the abundance of evidence and data in your word that we have rightly divided it this morning. But in light of your coming, a date that cannot be changed, Lord, I don't care what anybody's theology is at that moment. All I care is that I will be doing what pleases you. I want to be caught preaching the gospel or discipling my children. I want to be caught in prayer. Whatever, I just want to be caught being faithful. Lord, I pray that you would use all of these facts, all of these details, especially the time of your appearing and what you accomplished then to just motivate us, Lord. You will come at any moment, and we want to be ready for that. So please grant us grace, Lord, to be mindful, to be attentive, Lord, and to walk worthy of your sacrifice. Lord, thank you for my church family. Be with them and help this to, to develop conviction in them for holiness, for faithfulness, Lord. Lord, that you would be glorified. Bless them, I pray in Jesus. Amen. All right, I went long, but I didn't want to leave any of that over for next week. So, Lord bless you guys. Love you.